If you would take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. For our scripture reading this morning, 1 Peter 3. I want to read together verses 1 through 7, text for the message today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, first a word to the wives. It says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. A brief prayer. Our Father and our God, this passage of Scripture can be very, very practical, but it's also very needful. I pray that you would speak to us, especially those of us who are married husbands or wives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the books we have on our bookshelf of for sale books out there in the hallway is a book entitled The One-Year Christian History. I've been going through that, uh, going through that book this year as a, a before-I-go-to-sleep uh, reading, and I was I was really struck by the entry on February 10th as it recounts the, uh, I guess a good way to put it, the deeply troubled marriage of John Wesley to his wife, Molly Vazile. Molly Vazile was uh, a widow, and so he married her, uh, they were later in life. But I wanted to read a portion of this to you because of just how, just how poignant it was. Says John Wesley thought he had found the perfect wife in the widow Molly Vazile. He praised her for her, and I want you to, as you listen to this, I want you to hear what 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 are his thoughts as he's going into marriage. What are his attitudes about marriage? What what expectations do you see on the part of husband and wife in that marriage, and what are the consequences? He praised her for her quote indefatigable industry, exact frugality, uncommon neatness and cleanness, both in her person, clothes, and all things around her. Molly was past the age of childbearing, so Wesley would not be bound by the responsibilities of fatherhood. She was financially independent, which would free Wesley from the need to support her and allow him to continue to give to the poor. And finally, she was not a member of high society, so he would not have to accommodate the prying eyes that had followed one of Wesley's earlier love interests. In January 1751, John Wesley decided he would marry Molly. He decided he would marry Molly. Before they were married, Wesley planned a preaching tour in North England. Early on February 10, 1751, Wesley set out, but he didn't get very far. 
On London Bridge, he slipped on the ice and sprained his foot. So instead of preaching, he turned back, staying at Molly's home for a week so she could care for him. During that, fate, during that fateful week, he announced his intention to marry Mrs. Vazile immediately. Two weeks after the wedding, Wesley set off to preach without his wife. Molly eventually tried traveling with John, working among the poor and attempting to help John's ministry, but the difficulties wore on her quickly. Wesley made no attempt to change his schedule, desiring that his wife show true compassion and godly obedience. Molly grew increasingly resentful of his absences and developed a violent temper. As she became more unhappy, Molly sought to make Wesley's life unhappy as well. She destroyed some of his writings, publicly criticized him, and repeatedly accused him of adultery. In 1771, she abruptly left, only to return home three years later. Wesley was a small man, and shortly after Molly's return, a friend of Wesley's entered a room unannounced to find Molly dragging her husband across the floor by his hair. You're picturing that, aren't you? Things continued to deteriorate. Twice more, the couple attempted to reconcile, but in the end, Wesley was resolute in his rejection of his wife. He said this, quote, You have laid innumerable stumbling blocks in the way and increased the number of rebels, deists, atheists, and weakened the hands of those that love and fear God. If you were to live a thousand years twice told, you could not undo the mischief which you have done. And until you have done all you can towards it, I bid you farewell, end quote. Never to speak or meet again, Wesley was not even informed when she died. In his diary, he simply noted, quote, I came to London and was informed that my wife died on Monday. This evening she was buried, though I was not informed of it. Now this sad, tragic event, or life, or married life, or whatever you want to say about it, reminds me of an old pop song entitled Husbands and Wives. It was written by Roger Miller and sung by Neil Diamond. Part of it goes like this. Two broken hearts, lonely, looking like houses where nobody lives. Two people, each having so much pride inside, neither side forgives. The angry words spoken in haste, such a waste of two lives. It's my belief pride is the chief cause of the decline in the number of husbands and wives. You know, troubled times can do one of two things to a married couple. They can either weld them together or they can drive them apart. And if one or the other, uh, or both, uh, partners in the marriage is filled with pride, that is, if they, they don't see themselves properly and they don't see their role and responsibility properly, troubled times will tear that couple apart. And because of that fact, Peter is addressing Christian, uh, Christians in, in this letter as a whole. He's addressing Christians. And he describes, remember, he describes believers in 1 Peter as pilgrims and sojourners. And he says in chapter 1, verse 6, that we in this world as pilgrims and sojourners, we face various trials. We face troubled times. We are going to endure these things. And a good chunk of his letter 
in a good chunk of his letter, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12, he, his, his purpose is to prepare us to function well as Christians in this world through which we sojourn as pilgrims and sojourners. And so in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, just as a reminder, as a review, he lays down a general framework for living as pilgrims in this foreign land. This is just a general framework. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, that's just a, a general framework of how to live in this world as a foreigner. But then he applies that general framework in some specific areas. In verses 13 to 17, he applies the framework to our relationship with the government. And then in verses 18 to the end of chapter 2, he applies that framework to harsh employment conditions. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, where we're going to look today... He applies that framework to married life, giving counsel to both husbands and wives who are facing various trials. And here's the, here's the crux of what he's saying here. You, as husbands and wives, we need to accept our God-given responsibilities to preserve harmony in our, mar in our marriages and to prevent being another statistic. So let's see what he has to say. And I, I, I recognize and I will, um, I will acknowledge this on the part of the ladies who are sitting here. You, you look at this text and you say, man alive, there's six verses for the ladies and then there's only one for the guys. Well, uh, it, doesn't mean that there's, it doesn't mean that the wives have more responsibilities placed on their shoulders than the men. It just requires a little more elaboration. So let's look at what he has to say to the wives as he counsels wives to accept are uh, their God-given responsibilities. And, and let me just say this. I mentioned earlier that pride on the part of either the husband or wife, as that old song says, will tear the couple apart. Uh, the, the pride problem in a Christian wife can be seen, in, can go in one of two directions. If her husband is not a believer, she can become proud and assume that she is superior to her husband because he's not a Christian, and therefore she shouldn't have to listen to him or shouldn't have to be submissive to him. And she, if her husband is a Christian, she can develop the same sense of pride but in the, in the, uh, because the fact that they are equals. So well, you know, we're, you're, you're no better than I am. We're, we're one in Christ. We're equal in Christ, so I don't have to be submissive to you. So Paul wants to address that problem, that potential problem, when he says in verse 1, verses 1 and 2, as his first point of counsel, wives, be submissive to your husbands. But let's not misunderstand the meaning of what that submission is all about and what he's calling for here. He is not calling for wives to be submissive to men as a whole. And and, and the way he communicates that fact is with the little word own there at the beginning of the verse. You see it? He says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. <clears throat> and here's why he has to put that word own in there. Because in the Greek language, there is no word for husband. 
the word that's translated husband here is the word men. It's, it's the word anir. It's, 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 it's the word men. You see it translated men in other places in the, in the New Testament. And so how do you know that he's talking about their husbands with that word own? Be submissive to your own men, wives, to your own husbands. And I'm going to say more about that uh, terminology in just a few minutes. So he's not, calling for, he's not calling for universal submission to men, as you might see in some cultures like the Islamic culture and so forth. He's also not calling for indiscriminate obedience or submission to, uh, to one's husband. What I mean by that is, just like we've seen in the other aspects of submission <clears throat> with the government and, to, uh, and, and in an employment situation, uh, he's not calling for wives to ignore uh, abuse, uh, a husband's abuse, whether it's physical or verbal. And, you know, he may want her to. He may, he may tell her to stay quiet about those things. Well, he, she doesn't have to submit to that kind of abuse. She doesn't have to submit if the husband is, in, is insisting that she somehow disobey God or somehow violate her biblically informed conscience. There are limits to submission. But what he is calling for is a godly submission whereby the wife follows the leadership of her husband in the home. That is, she, he's calling upon her to accept the decisions, the conclusions that he reaches as the leader of the home, of the household, and to follow those directions. He then goes on to describe the character of godly submission. What, is that, what does that kind of submission look like? It's not the kind of submission that is mere resignation to something that I've got to do with a humph and a sigh. It is, he says, a kind of submission that is, in verse 2, chaste and accompanied by fear. Godly submission is marked by chaste conduct, by chaste conduct. That is, a purity, that's the word chaste, a purity both in motive and behavior. I want you to think back to that opening, uh, opening vignette of the marriage of John and Molly Wesley. What in the world was Molly thinking when she took her husband's writings and burned them and destroyed them. What, what were her motives? Whatever those motives were, they weren't pure, and the conduct certainly wasn't chaste, you see. So I can illustrate that chaste conduct by that negative there, all right? It involves a purity in motive and in conduct. It also calls for uh, this godly submission, a respectful manner. So he says, they, when they observe your chaste conduct in verse 2, accompanied by fear. That's not talking about the cowering uh, kind of fear where the wife is afraid that if she doesn't do what her husband tells her to do, he's going to beat her or something of that nature. That is, ne that is never called for in Scripture. God does not call wives to cower in fear to brutal, abusive uh, husbands. And if I, if I had, and I, I have on rare occasions, had occasions where a wife 
told me, informed me that her husband was physically abusive to her. My counsel to her was, call the police. That is assault. Don't put up with that. There is no way in the world I would ever tell a wife, oh, well, you just have to accept it and bear it because, after all, he is your husband. No, no, not at all. So what is he talking here about this fear then? It's, it's, the, it's the kind of fear that we have to God in a way. It, it is the, as believers in Christ, we have a reverence for or a respect for him. And that's what he's calling for uh, on a wife toward her husband. A, a, a respectful manner of submission. Again, maybe a best way to uh, describe this is by the negative. So a disrespectful wife, for example, would be one who, is, who sees her husband's weaknesses and his failings, the things that he can't do, he doesn't have the ability for, the capacity for, and she disdains him for those things. She looks down upon him because he doesn't measure up in certain areas. Or she might express that disrespect with some uh, subtle criticisms or some put-downs. Or one of the things that's most harmful to husbands is when she publicly, in front of other people, uh, criticizes him or you know, humiliates him. By the way, that goes both ways, doesn't it, ladies? No. That the godly submission that Peter is calling for is one that is marked by chaste conduct and a respectful manner. Why? 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 Why behave this way? Well, we could mention a few uh, a few motivations, but Peter zeroes in on one at the end of verse one. He says, "Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word." may be won by the conduct of their wives. In other words, there is a redemptive purpose behind this, this action that he's calling for, the, the fulfilling of this responsibility. So that if, if, a, if a wife is, has a believing husband, but he's sinning, he's doing wrong, he's, he's in error, that she may by her by her submission, her chaste conduct and respect, she may bring him to a place of repentance and getting right with God. She may be the instrument to do that. Or if her husband is not a believer, she may be uh, an instrument in God's hand to bring that unconverted husband to faith in Jesus Christ. This, this goes back to that general framework, doesn't it? Back in chapter 2. Verse 12, look at verse 12 again in chapter 2. He says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, but here let's just read it honorable among your husband, having your conduct honorable among your husband, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they you know, aren't, aren't the best husbands in the world, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. They may come to faith in Jesus Christ and thereby glorify God when he visits them with that salvation. So his first word of counsel to the wives is to be submissive to your husbands. The second word of counsel in verses 3 and 4 is to be properly adorned before your husband. He says in verse 3, don't let your adornment be merely outward. 
don't be so focused on that external beauty, emphasizing that and making that everything that you ignore the more important, the true source of beauty is his counsel here in verses 3 and 4. There is a propensity among some to overly emphasize that external beauty, and that's, that's an understandable trap to fall into because that's the, that's the dominant thinking of the culture, the dominant emphasis of the culture, I should say, even was back in the first century when Peter wrote this, to put all one's emphasis on the externals. And he talks about the, uh, the arranging of the hair, having elaborate hairdos, the wearing of gold, which was a status symbol, and uh, the putting on of fine apparel so that she can strut like a peacock kind of thing. But, but, but uh, uh, neglecting the true realm of beauty. Reminds me of a woman I knew in a church we served in years and years and years ago. She had all of the outward, all of the outward stuff down to a T. You know, I mean, she wore the expensive clothes. She did the expensive nail stuff and all the expensive beauty stuff and did everything she could to make herself externally beautiful but she was really a very ugly person. She was cruel. She was bitter. She was not beautiful as a person. Peter says, don't fall into that trap. Be properly adorned. Be properly adorned before your husband by emphasizing true beauty, as he says in verse 4, this internal beauty, an internal beauty that, that doesn't fade or need constant updating, right? Look at what he says. He says, rather let it be that hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty, the incorruptible beauty. It's not a beauty that it's not a beauty that's going to fade over time. It's only going to get more beautiful over time. It's an incorruptible beauty. And it's interesting that, Paul, that Peter uses the same word here, incorruptible, that he used back in chapter 1 regarding, regarding your inheritance. In verse 4, remember this? He says, you know, in verse 3, God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. So the, this, this, uh, this, inner, this internal beauty that Peter's calling for the, the wives to cultivate is, is an indestructible, an incorruptible beauty that is as, uh, as can be as permanent as that inheritance that's waiting for you. But he also uses that word in another place in, um, in chapter 1, uh, verse 23 where he says, you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, such as silver and gold, but, you, but you've been born again with incorruptible, the incorruptible seed, which is what? The word of God. All right, so you get the sense of the importance and the permanence of this internal beauty. It is not something that fades. It actually improves with time. And it is a beauty that is greatly admired. 
It says in verse 4, this incorruptible beauty of a quiet, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious. This internal beauty is one that is greatly admired because it expresses a Christ-like spirit. He says it's a beauty that is the beauty of a gentle spirit. That's exactly how Jesus described himself. You remember that? In Matthew eleven twenty nine, after he said in verse 28, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He then said of himself, For I am gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. This is Christ-like. This is Christ-like. And it is also a, a, a quality, a beauty, that makes one... Uh, you don't mind being around a beautiful woman like this, one who has a gentle and quiet spirit. And, and that I find that um, description uh, interesting, by way, again, by way of contrast. Because you remember in the book of Proverbs, uh, the writer of Proverbs describes some wives in a not very flattering way. They're not very beautiful, regardless of how they look on the outside. Because uh, he says in chapter 21, the writer of Proverbs in chapter 21, verse 9, he says, it's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop, like as far away in the house as you can possibly get. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a contentious woman. That is a non-quiet woman. In verse 19, he says something similar. He says, it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious woman. And in chapter 27, verse 15, he says, a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. And by the way, you should read there when you read the word woman, you should read wife. Again, and I'll say more about this in a moment, the Hebrew language, like the Greek language, does not have different words for husband and wife. They just use man and woman. So you have to look at the context to figure out, is he talking about a husband or is he talking about a man in general? Is he talking about a wife or a woman in general? Well, here he's obviously talking about a wife. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a contentious wife. No, listen. A beautiful, a wife that develops an internal beauty. This internal beauty is one who's going to be marked by that quiet spirit. She's not always brawling and contentious. She's not the, the, the loud mouth nag, if I can use that expression. This kind of beauty, this kind of beauty is priceless. See this at the end of verse 4. This is very precious in the sight of God. This is very precious in the sight of God. So his counsel to wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Be properly adorned before your husband. And then his third counsel in verses 5 and 6 it would, would be, could be expressed this way. Be imitators of the right examples. Be imitators of the right examples. And, and in verse 5, he gives a, a general example to follow, the holy women. He says, for in this manner in former times, the holy women trusted in God. So, so you want to be like these 
holy women. Imitate these holy women. Well, what were they like? What is it about them that is worth imitating? He says, first of all, they were women who trusted their God. They trusted their God. They trusted in God also. We're going to see an example of a woman who shows that trust in God when it could be very, very difficult to trust her husband. We'll see that in just a few minutes. But, but here's the idea. By, by imitating these holy women who trusted in God, the godly wife will be confident that God, God would never fail her. Regardless of the circumstances and regardless of her husband's failings, and, re, and even if this decision that, that my husband is leading to make in our home is not the best, and it's, you know, maybe she sees something that he doesn't, she thinks she sees something that he doesn't see, or she actually does see something that he doesn't see, doesn't recognize. And yet he's making this decision, and, and she's, she could be fearful that it's going to be a disaster. But she's going to follow the godly women of old who trusted in God, who said, okay, this isn't my decision. It's my husband's. So, Father, I'm trusting in you. You won't fail me, even if my husband's decision does. They trusted in God. And uh, secondly, what else did they do? These, trusted, these, these women who trusted in God, these holy women of old, they so adorned themselves. They adorned themselves. They cultivated that inner beauty. And thirdly, they expressed submission to their husbands. They were submissive to their own husbands, it says at the end of verse 5. So uh, th there's the general pattern. There's a general example. You've got some holy women of old. You can look in the Old Testament examples of, of a bunch of different women who expressed this trust in God. They cultivated an inner beauty, and they expressed submission to their husbands along the way. But then in verse 6, he gets specific. He zeroes in on one woman of old, Sarah. He says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, this, this verse uh, demands a little explanation, doesn't it? In, in a couple of different ways. Sarah obeyed Abraham. Can you think of an example of when Abraham told his wife Sarah to do some things and she did it, she obeyed? We'll talk about one of those in just a moment. She did. But then it says, she called him Lord. She called him Lord. And that causes some wives to be a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you wives refer to your husband as my Lord? Let me ask the husbands. Husbands, how many of your wives call you Lord? I'll tell you what, mine doesn't. And that's, that's, no reflect, that's no negative reflection on her whatsoever, not in the least bit. Because she doesn't call me Lord, she calls me husband. Let me explain. As I said, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, there is no Hebrew word for husband. 
Husband is a word that developed much, much later than the Hebrew language and even than the, than the Greek language. The word Lord it means master, and it was simply the customary way a wife would refer to her husband. And she didn't say, this is my husband. There wasn't a word for it. So how could she express the relationship, the role responsibilities and relationship that existed between the man and the woman? She refers to him as her Lord, as her master. She's reflecting in that a, a, an attitude of submission, and she's also reflecting in that the responsibility that her husband has in the home. Now, in our culture, we don't call, uh, wives don't call their men lords. You call your man your husband. You know what that word means? I had to look it up because I thought I knew, but what I thought I knew because I heard somebody say something at one time, I realized that doesn't mean that at all. The root meaning of the word husband is, quote, one who manages with prudence and economy, using and employing resources to good purpose and the best advantage. That's the root meaning of the word husband. So when you, when you talk about the marriage rule, and that goes back into you know, several hundred years in the English language. When you talk about and apply that word to marriage, that means the man in the marriage does those duties of managing with prudence and economy, using and employing resources to good purpose and the best advantage. He does those duties to the best advantage to his household and his marriage. That's his responsibility. That's why he's called the husband, because he's the one who does the managing of those resources, and he's supposed to do so with prudence and economy. And when the wife calls her man, her husband, whether she knows it or not, she is acknowledging his leadership role in the home to do those, various, those very things. So, hence the term. So, wives, call your men husbands, and therefore show respect. So she, she, uh, she respected her husband by calling him Lord, and she trusted in her God. Because look at the end of uh, verse 6. He says, She obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror, as Sarah did good and was not afraid with any terror. That's the point. You follow that example. She trusted her God. She was not afraid with any terror. Now again, let me ask the question. Can you remember a situation in the relationship between Abraham and Sarah, and it actually occurred more than once, when Abraham told her to do something that could have been very uncomfortable for her and could have filled her with a great deal of fear. Remember the occasion? Going into Egypt, sojourning in Egypt. And on the way, just before they enter Egypt, Abraham says to Sarah, his wife, when we get to Egypt, don't tell anybody you're my wife. Tell everybody you're my sister. Now, remember, that was a half-truth, because Sarah was a half-sister, if you will. So it was a half-truth. But why did he do that? 
because, he said, they're going to look at you and see your outward beauty. That's a reflection of your inner beauty. They're going to look at you and see your beauty, and someone's going to take you and kill me if, I, if I'm known as your husband. They're going to kill me because they want you. So just pass yourself off as my sister, and all will be well. Now, I don't want us to get bogged down in the details of that thing and whether or not Abraham never should have done that. There should have been some trust on his part that he failed and so forth. But here's, here's the thing. We're zeroing in on Sarah, you see. Sarah was in a position where, you know, what is she going to do? What is she going to do? She submitted without any fear. She was not afraid with any terror. In other words... Think of all the possible outcomes that occurred, that could have occurred in that situation. And, uh, and there are a number of them, right? Um, she could have been taken to be somebody else's wife and the attempt was made. And there could have been no divine intervention. And she would have been stuck in Egypt. And then what, was, you know, you, just, you can just go on with that. But that's not, how she, that's not how she reacted to it. She went along with it. And she did so without any fear. And God actually blessed that faith and that trust on her part. Now, let's think about this and apply it in a modern situation. How many times have Christian husbands made sincere decisions, not, so, not wholly selfish decisions like, I want a new bass boat. We're going to go into Hawk so I can get a new bass boat. You know, and not care about what anybody else needs in the family and so forth. No, I'm not talking about those kind of decisions. I'm talking about sincere decisions that their wives considered to be risky and maybe potentially upsetting their sense of security, the wives' sense of security. For example, the husband may have a goal to quit his job and start his own business. So he does a lot of work, he does a lot of thinking, he's studying, trying to figure out, you know, what do I need to do to start this business? He gets counsel from others who've, who've started businesses, other entrepreneurs and so forth. He's, he's talked it out thoroughly with his wife, and he's considered what the needs of his family were and the, imp, the potential impact on the family and so forth. But when all that information is collected and all that stuff is done, he finally decides to go for it. He sets a date out there where he's going to start his business and quit his job. And one may come before the other, but there he goes. What does the wife do? That's a, scare, that's a potentially scary thing. A key to submission on the part of the wife in this kind of a situation is to accept the decision. Now listen, accept the decision and participate as need be. That's the part here in verse 6 where you do good. You accept the decision and you participate as need be. And then you are not controlled by a fear of doom. Like you're just waiting for everything to go belly up. And, and you just keep telling your husband, I know it's all going to fall and fail. It's going to be a disaster. No, listen, you don't go there. You don't go there. You're not afraid with any terror. And by the way, realize this, that being controlled by fear is really a subtle form of expressing disrespect for your husband, if you think about it, isn't it? 
and also of distrust for God. So the Council of Wives, be submissive, be properly adorned, and be imitators of good. And then we move to the husbands. We move to the husbands. And we've only got an hour worth of material for the husbands. So, uh, you know, all right, here we go. Husbands, he says in verse 7, accept your God-given responsibilities. And you do have God-given responsibilities. You are to function as a leader. But listen, how you function as a leader in your home makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference in how easy it is for your wife to fulfill her responsibilities of respect and submission. The problem with a lot of men is they let this whole notion of leadership go to their head and they don't understand that role properly and therefore they abuse it, they misuse it. Realize, men, you do have a responsibility to your wife. And notice the word that begins verse 7, or the second word in verse 7. After he says husbands, he says likewise. Likewise. That's a word that takes you back, right? It takes you back to verse 3, where she, he says, Hus- wives, likewise, be submissive. And that, likewise, wait, there's that word again. That takes you back to verse uh, 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. And that takes you all the way back to verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. There is a... There is a responsibility of submission that men have in our marriage relationship to our wives. Now, it's not the kind of, same kind of submission that a wife has to her husband. But we have, to be, we have to be submissive to our responsibility as men and husbands in our wives. You can fail in that responsibility when you wrongly demand submission either without earning it or when you're demanding submission for something that should not be submitted to in the first place. You can also fail in your responsibility by neglecting it, by not being a leader, the leader in the home. Harmony comes in the marriage in a duet, in a duet, when both husband and wife are doing their part. Think about, think about that cacophony in the Wesley household. What a disaster. What a screeching sound in that marriage, right? There was no harmony because neither partner, John nor Molly, were fulfilling their responsibilities. So accept your responsibility. And, and again, Peter gives us three things, three things, men. Number one, be considerate. Dwell with them with understanding. Dwell with them with understanding. What does that mean? Well, it could mean a lot of things, but let me just suggest a few. It means, in the first place, know what she's thinking. Know what her opinions are. It means to recognize her, recognize her weaknesses and her difficulties. You've got yours. Do you know what they are? Have you admitted them? Have you acknowledged them? Well, she has hers too. Do you understand them? Are you aware of them? What are the difficulties, the things she struggles with? Understand her feelings and her apprehensions and do so 
listen, men, here's the challenge. Here's our challenge, guys. Do so. Know her thoughts and opinions. Recognize her weaknesses and difficulties. Understand her feelings and apprehensions without the intention of changing them. Changing them may come, but that's not why you want to find out what those things are. Simply so I can change her and get her to do what I want her to do. Let me ask you this. Did John Wesley live with Molly with understanding? Did he have any perception of what she was struggling with, of her weaknesses, of her difficulties, of the challenges that were placed upon her by his career and his life? No. Listen, we want to find out these things so that we might understand and dwell better with our wives. Be considerate of them. And with that knowledge and understanding that you acquire, secondly, men, be respectful. Be respectful. Giving honor unto the wife. Giving honor means valuing highly. Valuing highly. Be respectful. Be respectful. Be respectful of her because of her value and her vulnerabilities. Her value and her vulnerabilities. What are your wife's innate vulnerabilities? Some of them are typical, not universal, but typical of wives. That's why he speaks of the wife as the weaker vessel. Typically, a wife is going to be physically weaker. We're seeing that played out in the swimming pool these days, right? And the big news of the trans guy who keeps slaughtering all of the women in the, in the swimming competition and how unjust and unfair that is. No, know her innate vulnerabilities. There's, a, there, there's likely a physically, she's physically weaker she also likely has a lower risk threshold. Most men have a higher risk threshold than their wives, most. And recognize that she has a needing, a, a, a sense of, she needs a sense of security. And God has brought you into her life to provide that. You are to be the human expression uh, and, and protector of her sense of security. So know her innate vulnerabilities, but then appreciate, listen, appreciate her essential value. She is nonetheless a vessel. A vessel. A vessel carries a load. And there is immense value in a vessel that carries a load. So let me ask you, men, and ask myself. We need to ask ourselves, husbands, do you seriously take into account your wife's particular vulnerabilities? Do you stop and think about and recognize the, the, the load that she carries and the value of that, of that load that, you, that she, your wife, carries as a mom, as, as a woman, as your wife? What a load! This is an incredibly valuable vessel that is by your side. Give honor to her for that value. 
And then also give honor to her, be respectful of her because of her equality with you, her equality with you. So he says in verse 7, you are heirs together of the grace of life. In Christ Jesus, you are equals. As Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And William Perkins, you probably don't know that name, you, you may, but probably don't. William Perkins was, uh, is considered the father of Puritanism. So we're going back a long, long time. But listen to what he says and how perceptive it is. William Perkins said, when the woman was created, she was not taken out of the man's head because she was not made to rule over him. Nor was she taken out of his feet because God did, ma did not make her subject to him as a servant. But she, but she was taken out of his side to the end that man should take her as his mate. Now, in that equality, and because of that equality, because of Christ, because of her being in Christ and you being in Christ and Christ in you and Christ in her, you, listen, you can learn some things from her. And all God's women said, okay, so allow yourselves, men, allow yourselves the luxury of, of learning some things from your wife. Allow her to Allow her to graciously admonish you or advise you. Luther did with his wife. Let me share this little story from Luther's, uh, Luther's marriage. He married a woman named Katharina. You remember that? She was a staunch supporter of her husband. She was a good keeper at home. Um, but she was also, the, the, the account says here, she was also gutsy and proactive. She was strong and determined. She needed to be to be married to Martin, no doubt. But Martin, did, did you know this? Martin Luther had a uh, propensity for melancholy and depression. So he writes here that uh, during one of his longer, Luther's longer lasting, deeper bouts of depression, Katie took action once again. Charles Spurgeon tells a story. Luther was a very cheerful man as a rule, but he had terrible fits of depression. He was at one time so depressed that his friends recommended he go away for a change of air to see if he could get relief. He went away for a few days, but he came home as miserable as ever. And when he went into the sitting room, his wife Kate was sitting there dressed in black and her children round about her all in black. Luther came in and he sees this and he says, Oh, oh no, Who, who's dead? Well, she said, Doctor, have you not heard that God is dead? My husband Martin Luther would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust to. Then, how did Luther respond to that? How dare you, woman? How dare you treat me like that? I'll tell you what I'm going to... That's the way John Wesley would have responded. No, that's not what he did. He burst into a hearty laugh, and he said, Kate, thou art a wise woman. I've been acting as if God were dead, and I will do so no more. Go and take off thy black, he says to her. He was willing to be admonished by her. Third, uh, third encouragement, men, be spiritual. 
that your prayers be not hindered. And what I mean by that is this. In your role as a husband, listen, get this. In your role as a husband, be concerned with your fellowship with God. Because here's the thing. Your fellowship with God is impacted by your attitude and your actions toward your wife. Again, let me give you an example that may be helpful. John Wesley's father, Samuel Wesley, was also in the ministry, but he was not a very good man. He was a horrible husband. He was a terrible father. His mother, Susanna, was a pretty good woman. Had to be to deal with him. But Samuel Wesley would often leave his household, his family, for some long stretches of time in the winter months, and he'd go to London where it was warmer. He'd leave them at home in the cold and hungry. He was a terrible provider. He had ample income. He could have provided for them well, but he, he provided for them scarcely, providing the bare minimum of what he needed to do for the husband and wife. And in one telling incident regarding his attitude toward himself in the role that he played and his attitude toward his wife, he, had a, he, he prayed at a closing prayer in his uh, family devotions or whatever it was, and he asked for God to bless the king. And the king at that time was, well, he wasn't a good man. He asked for God to bless the king. And Susanna would not say amen to that. She could not agree that God should bless the king. So Samuel got so angry with her, he left, just left the home. And he refused to live with her for months. And I ask, how many prayers of Samuel Wesley's didn't get any higher than the ceiling in the room. So we're living in some of the most troubling times of the last few generations, aren't we? How are your marriages holding up? Are you truly one in Christ Jesus? Are you both husband and wife saved, committed followers of Christ? Are you endeavoring to carry out your responsibility, husband or wife? Are you endeavoring to carry out those respective responsibilities with all of your heart, all of your being? One of the greatest ways that Christian couples can positively impact lost sinners in this world today, impacting them for Christ, is by having strong marriages in troubled times. Let's be that kind of a witness as husbands and wives. Our Father and our God, we are living in troubled times, and these, these troubles, these trials, they can become very domestic. I pray that by your grace, you would give us men and women who are husbands and wives, give us the grace to live with one another in unity and in love and truly respectful of one another and submissive to one another in our responsibilities and in our roles, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.